Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 5, The End of Isolation. Before we dive into this week's discussion, you've no doubt noticed that this episode is a few days behind schedule. I had every intention of getting the episode up on Monday as I had planned, but I came down with what I guess you could call a bad case of writer's block, which was odd because I hardly think I'd do enough writing to qualify for that ailment. But anyway, I had everything all planned out, but a strong gust of wind must have blown it all out of my head at some point, and I could not, for the life of me, commit the information to paper in a way that was succinct. So, I decided to take an extra couple of days and make sure everything was in working order. But, we'll be back to regular scheduled programming for Monday, and I hope you can all find it in your hearts to let this one little hiccup slide. So without further ado, on to the next chapter. The British decision to abandon their policy of splendid isolation came at a bit of an odd time. After 1897, the British Empire was at the pinnacle of its power. Covering over 33 million square kilometers and boasting a population of nearly 450 million, it was the largest empire the world had ever seen, and in no other time was that better displayed than the late 19th century. Its industrial output surpassed any of the continental powers, and the prestige of the Royal Navy, the glue which held the whole empire together, continued to be unrivaled in its mastery of the seas, and was the source of envy around the world. Following Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee celebration, it looked as if the empire had the whole road to itself, and the troubles of the past were firmly in the rearview mirror. The new Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, who returned to office in June of 1895, was seen to embody everything the empire stood for. Firmly conservative and staunchly xenophobic, Salisbury believed that upholding isolation now was more important than ever. Only through avoiding alliances and secret agreements had the empire been able to achieve what it had. Splendid isolation, he argued, had never been so splendid, and he found no reason to abandon the traditional policy. However, as the 20th century began to dawn, there was no denying that cracks in the imperial foundation had begun to show. England was friendless on the continent. Its once wide advantage in industrial production had severely been reduced with Germany, Russia, and the United States becoming manufacturing powerhouses after 1897. The Royal Navy was also stretched to capacity, and required constant retooling if it were to remain the undisputed master of the seas. As battleships were the most expensive and technologically advanced weapons at the time, they required a large percentage of the annual budget if they were to remain in working order. The economic strain posed by the Royal Navy led many critics, such as John Atkinson Hobson, to argue that the empire should be abandoned altogether, before naval expenditures brought about an economic collapse. And then, finally, there was the undeniable fact that the British were no longer the only ones interested in the obtaining and preservation of an overseas empire. France, Germany, and Russia, along with the emergence of the United States and Japan, had made it a crowded playing field. In turn, each of these powers had grabbed hold of territory along the coast of China and in other parts of the Far East. As we'll see later today, the Far East will become a region of contention among the eager powers, and would eventually push the British out of pure necessity to end their policy of splendid isolation. But before we get into events in the Far East, we need to turn back to England for a bit, as it was the British inability to secure an alliance on the continent which prompted Salisbury and the new colonial Secretary of State Joseph Chamberlain to begin seeking allies elsewhere, 
which began the long diplomatic process which would eventually culminate in the signing of the Anglo-Japanese Military Alliance by 1902. But, like I said, we'll get there in a little bit. By the 1890s, England had come to see the largest threat to its imperial holdings coming not from the French or Germans, as you might be led to believe, but from Tsarist Russia. If this comes as a surprise, just hold on one second. The two sides did have a history. They had gone to war in 1853 in the Crimea, and in 1878, the British did play a large role in pressuring the Tsar to halt his advances into Ottoman territory during the Balkan uprisings, which we covered back in episode 2. In fact, the only times England had become involved in the continent was when it appeared Russia was looking into territorial expansion. So it was not as if the rivalry between the two powers was a new development at all. But the rift between the two powers had widened considerably since the signing of the Franco-Russian military agreement back in January of 1894. You'll recall from the previous episode that one of the caveats for that alliance to come to fruition was that the French would heavily invest in the struggling Russian infrastructure. Since then, the Russian Tsar, now Nicholas II, who came to power following the death of Alexander III, had his nation on the fast track to modernization. Its industrial capabilities were on the rise, and with the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway now in full swing, it would soon have a direct link from Moscow to the port city of Vladivostok, located on the banks of the Sea of Japan. This rapid turnaround had alarmed the English colonial office, most notably the Prime Minister Lord Salisbury and Joseph Chamberlain, who predicted that it would only be a matter of time before the Russians would spill over into the Chinese province of Manchuria, whose ports would then allow the Tsar to have open access to sea lanes leading directly into the Pacific Ocean. Although the Royal Navy did have a presence in the Far East, it was already stretched to capacity throughout the empire and there arose a real concern that it would be unable to prevent the Tsar's forces from not only taking Manchuria, but any of the key ports throughout the Far East. This concern was rightly justified, when in March of 1898, the Russians seized the strategic harbor of Port Arthur. The port, located at the gateway to the Yellow Sea, was a political and economic victory for the Tsar. Not only was Port Arthur a natural harbor and easily defendable, but it was also a warm water port, which allowed for continual shipping all year round. For a nation whose harbors remained ice-locked for months at a time, this provided a huge boost to the Russian economy. With the seizing of Port Arthur, the colonial office needed no further proof that the Russians would soon be looking to expand further eastward. Although he hated to admit it, Salisbury could not deny that the empire would be unable to handle Russian incursions on their own. Therefore, in 1898, he gave authority to his colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, to begin shopping for an ally. But the list of potential suitors was a short one. The French were already in an alliance with Russia, and the Americans and Japanese did not present the best options, while the Italians and Austro-Hungarians simply did not have the military credibility. So, by process of elimination, that left Germany as the lone candidate. In reality, the Germans and British coming to a military alliance was not too far out of the question. The two powers had links to the other, which had them on a more equal footing than anyone else. One of which was that Wilhelm II was Queen Victoria's grandson. So there was already a firm family connection between the two. But what Chamberlain saw was Germany's key geographic position. The German army, the best fighting force on the continent, could be used to pressure the Russians on the land, while the British Navy could also apply pressure from the seas. Certainly, 
a combination of the German Imperial Army and the British Royal Navy, would be enough deterrence for Tsar Nicholas to abandon whatever expansion plans he may have had in mind. So, in March of 1898, just days after the Russian occupation of Port Arthur, Chamberlain met with the German ambassador Paul von Hatzfeld to discuss the possibility of a military alliance. In the meetings, Chamberlain was forced to lay it all on the table. England, he argued, was desperate. The Royal Navy was stretched too thin to be of any effect against the Russians, and if Germany were to pledge its support, they could count on the English to return the favor if Germany were to ever find itself attacked by either France or Russia. Sweet deal, right? But, following the orders from Wilhelm and the German Secretary of State Bernard von Bülow, Hatzfeld provided no answer and deliberately stalled the negotiations. By delaying the talks, Wilhelm and Bülow were hoping to achieve a few things. The first was that the Kaiser just loved the sight of the English arriving hat in hand, and hoped that with a prolonged pause in the talks, Chamberlain would be forced to offer imperial concessions purely out of desperation. The second was that according to Hatzfeld, the idea of Germany risking a conflict with the Franco-Russian alliance over English interests in Asia simply did not add up. The small British army could do nothing against a combined assault, and using Chamberlain's own words, if the Royal Navy was indeed too weak to check the Russians, how would it be of any help to Germany? I ask you, sir, how? But Robert Massey offers a third explanation for the delay. Around this same time, the first of Admiral Tirpitz's naval laws were awaiting ratification from the Reichstag. The first of several bills outlined Tirpitz's plans for the quick construction of a German high fleet. The first bill, which was due for ratification in March of 1898, called for the construction of 19 battleships and almost 50 cruisers to be completed by April of 1904. The second bill, which would be passed in 1900, would double the original order to include 38 battleships and 58 additional cruisers, effectively putting the German Navy in direct competition with the British. With all this in mind, Wilhelm and Bülow had to tread carefully when dealing with Chamberlain. On the one hand, a deal with the English would signal to the Reichstag that Germany no longer needed a navy, since England was now no longer a threat. But on the other hand, if they rejected Chamberlain outright, Germany would solely be responsible for instigating naval tensions between the two powers. But on the other other hand, if they were to let the British in on their naval plans ahead of time, Chamberlain would have certainly seen it as an unmistakable challenge to the supremacy of the Royal Navy, and could result in a British declaration of war. So as Massey argues, as long as the naval laws were awaiting ratification, the German leadership decided it would be safer to dangle the idea of an alliance in front of Chamberlain, but not go so far as to firmly commit to a yes or no. Better to keep the English at arm's length and friendly than risk all-out war. You know what I mean? But Chamberlain remained undeterred, and continued to push his German counterparts to come to terms. Following the Fashoda incident in the late summer of 1898, when an awkward standoff in South Sudan almost brought France and Britain to war, Chamberlain revived talks with Germany. He hoped that now, Bülow and Hatzfeld could see that the English, in the wake of Fashoda, now had reasons to suspect the French as well. So an Anglo-German agreement as a counterweight to the Franco-Russian alliance should be the next logical step. If the German leadership were in need of further evidence of England's commitment to an alliance, they received their proof in November of 1899, when the two powers settled a dispute over the small islands of Samoa. 
This small collection of islands, located off the eastern coast of Australia, had been a sought-after location by both Britain and Germany, but also the United States, as their location provided a convenient coaling station for overseas vessels. Of course, Germany still had no navy, wink wink, but Wilhelm was unwilling to withdraw his bid for the islands, claiming it was a source of national pride that he not back down in the face of American and British pressure. In the end, Chamberlain was desperate to keep the Germans on the same page, and agreed that Britain would withdraw from Samoa completely, leaving the islands to be split between the United States and Germany in exchange for small German concessions elsewhere. Chamberlain hoped that relations between the two powers had improved enough after Samoa to again take another stab at an alliance. But by this time, Britain's international reputation had taken a hard hit, after its reaction to a series of rebellions which had broken out in South Africa. The South African conflict, or the Boer War, would last from 1899 to 1902, and became the target of much ridicule by the other European powers. The Boers, spelled B-O-E-R-S, were descendants of Dutch miners who had traveled to South Africa following the gold rush in the 1880s. Although nearly 350,000 imperial troops were sent to quell the rebellions, they were unable to defeat the opposition's meager 65,000 defenders, who employed effective use of hit-and-run guerrilla-style tactics. As a result of frustration and heightening embarrassment, the British began to resort to extreme military practices such as scorched-earth policies and the hoarding of thousands of captives, mostly women and children, into Typha's rampant concentration camps. With all this raging in the background, and in the face of international protest, Chamberlain again tried to offer the Germans a modified plan for an alliance, but this time a three-way collaboration with the United States. Chamberlain attempted to sell this proposal by arguing that the three powers would be more than enough to check any aggressive moves from the French or Russians. But again, the Germans rebuffed the offer. Von Bülow retorted to Chamberlain that since the British army could not defeat a bunch of Dutch farmers in South Africa, they could be of no effect in the event of a French or Russian attack on Berlin. It was clear, not just to Bülow, but to the rest of the world as well, that the war in South Africa had exposed Britain as a nation on the decline, desperate to cling on to the visage of still holding sway in the world. Chamberlain, exhausted from his efforts, broke off the negotiations, and it seemed that his quest to bring England out of isolation had failed for good. But in June of 1900, European diplomacy got a branch between the spokes when news arrived from China that European holdings had come under attack from a group calling themselves the Boxers, whose goal was to expel all foreigners and re-establish China as the great imperial power it once was. The immediate cause of the infamous Boxer Rebellion came after Germany seized a number of towns and ports in the Shandong province, located along the western bank of the Yellow Sea in the twilight of 1899. Wilhelm had ordered these holdings to undergo a period of rapid Germanification, where German law, language, and culture were forced upon the local Chinese population. The Harmonious Fists, or the Boxers as history remembers them, were natives of the Shandong province who saw the German incursion as an extension of European encroachment, which had been ongoing since 1842. The Boxers had come to identify that all of China's misfortunes had come at the hands of European greed and arrogance. They felt that Europeans had ruined Chinese integrity, and the only way for China to regain its glory would be to throw all foreigners out under threat of extreme violence and intimidation. 
As the boxers moved inland towards Beijing, Europeans protested that the Chinese central government take action against the approaching rebels. The empress, however, decided to throw her support behind the boxers, as she saw them as the most convenient way to restore some credibility to her fragile dynasty. In a speech, the empress declared war on Europe by claiming that the boxers were the embodiment of Chinese vengeance, who would expel Europe forever and restore China as the dominant power in the East. In June of 1900, the boxers entered Beijing and began to lay siege to the foreign embassies. When word arrived of the developments in Beijing, Europe suddenly forgot its problems and all its attention was turned toward China. In Britain, the South African War suddenly took a back seat, and in Germany, Wilhelm II, determined to demonstrate his nation's strength to the world, called for the assembly of an international relief force to be placed under the command of a German field marshal. In a speech that July, the Kaiser told his troops to invoke the memory of Attila the Hun and slaughter every Chinese man, woman, and child they encountered. His speech made headlines around the world and caused suspicion in England toward what the Kaiser's intentions really were. The expeditionary force, made up of some 20,000 troops from eight different nations, including the United States and Japan, marched on Beijing in August of 1900, and after bitter street-to-street -street fighting, successfully raged the siege. The boxers fled into the countryside, and the empress evaded capture by going into hiding. In retaliation, Beijing was looted relentlessly, and much of the surrounding countryside towns were burned to the ground. With the eyes of the world firmly focused on events in Beijing, the Russian Tsar, Nicholas II, claiming the unstable situation in China was a threat to national security, ordered his forces to occupy the Chinese province of Manchuria. For the British, this was the big oh crap moment, and it was hoped that with the international force still occupying Beijing, it could be used to apply pressure on the Tsar to forfeit the occupation. But by September of 1900, the United States had withdrawn from China, and past talks with Germany had made it abundantly clear that they were not going to risk antagonizing the Russians as long as their military alliance with the French was still in effect. Tsar Nicholas refused to budge, and it looked as if Britain would have to stand alone and remain isolated against growing Russian expansionism. The last chance to break from isolation presented itself when the Japanese, equally alarmed with the Manchurian occupation, alerted England that they were willing to talk. Japan's main concern was focused on the security of the Korean Peninsula, and looking at a map of the region, one can easily see the dilemma the Russian occupation now posed. The Korean Peninsula is located directly between the Japanese home islands in Manchuria. This meant that with Russian forces now in Manchuria, it would only be a short walk for them to begin funneling into Korea, and thus, be posed within striking distance of Japan itself. In the event of that happening, the Japanese, like the British, felt they would be unable to contain Russian encroachment single-handedly, and so would need an ally to increase their chances of success. But in addition to these concerns, the Japanese also had an axe to grind with the Russian czars. Back in 1895, Japan had swiftly defeated China in a war over the control of the Korean Peninsula, and as a result, they had seized the strategically sound location of Port Arthur. Yep, the same Port Arthur Russia would take over in March of 1898. Following their war with China, in April of 1895, Japan had been forced to surrender the prize after Russia, Germany, and France 
had intervened and threatened war against Japan if the port was not abandoned immediately. The Japanese saw this as a slap in the face by each of the three powers, and when the Russians occupied the port three years later, Japan painted a bullseye on its eastern rival, and began to look ahead to a time when it could strike back against the humiliation. So in April of 1901, the Japanese ambassador in London notified the British government of their similar interests in seeing Russia stop from expanding further in the east. Chamberlain, who was still busy with the war in South Africa, left the negotiations to his contemporary, the new Foreign Secretary Lord Lansdowne. The talks between Lansdowne and the Japanese ambassador Hayashi Tadatsu continued until the autumn of 1901, and the two sides realized that they could offer mutual support for the other. While it may have seemed that the two powers had nothing in common, it was quickly revealed that they more or less were on the same page over the situation in Asia. The Japanese had made it clear that they sought no colonial concessions from the British, and would guarantee the status quo in the Far East, if the English would send naval support in the event of a Japanese war with Russia. To Lansdowne, these were acceptable terms, and it was a welcome change from the demands of Bulow and Wilhelm, who continually brought up concessions during their conversations with Chamberlain. More importantly, it also told Lansdowne that Japan would be a stabilizing force in the Far East, which would allow the Royal Navy to be redeployed to other key areas of the Empire in the event of a crisis. Not only did this please naval command, but Japan also offered a very distinct military advantage if the British were to become involved in a continental war. If the French and Russians were to declare war on England, the Japanese fleet, which had already shown its tenacity during the war with China, could be used to attack Russia in the east, which would force Russian command to siphon off large detachments of troops and vessels to meet this unexpected threat. With the Tsar now fighting a two-front war, he would be unable to fully commit to the terms of the alliance with the French, and the potential of the Franco-Russian alliance would be severely undercut. So, in January of 1902, the Japanese and British officially signed on the dotted line, bringing about the formation of the Anglo-Japanese alliance. What the alliance signaled to the rest of the world was that Great Britain had officially ended their own policy of splendid isolation. Never again could Lansdowne, Salisbury, Chamberlain, or any of their successors use isolation as a defense in order to avoid entanglement. Britain, which had always remained on the edges of European diplomacy, were now smack dab in the middle of it. And although it had taken events in the Far East to finally encourage them to come out from under the covers, they were now no longer the wild card and henceforth, despite attempts to the contrary, will begin to play a more active role as Europe edged closer to 1914. The cat was out of the bag, and if the British could agree to terms with the Japanese, then surely they could also be wooed into an agreement with France and Russia too, right? Right? Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you next week.